Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon. The unique blend of hunting, conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle delivered in an entertaining, informative fashion that only a veteran outdoorsman can do. DSC Campfires is brought to you by DSC, the Dallas Safari Club, conservation, education, and hunter advocacy. Hornady, accurate, deadly, dependable. Trigicon, brilliant aiming solutions. Ruger, rugged, reliable firearms. Burnham Brothers Game Calls, the callingest call made. Double Nickel Taxidermy, where hunting memories are preserved. Now, here's your host, Larry Wysoon. Welcome to our weekly campfire. A few years ago, actually more than probably a few years ago, I used to write a column for a publication called Southern Livestock Standard, which was a weekly newspaper really designed more or less toward livestock and livestock producers. In that, I wrote a column called A View from the Pear Flat. Now, for those of y'all who don't quite understand some of the terminology from South Texas, but a, a pear flat is nothing more than uh, a huge expanse, sometimes a small expanse, of prickly pear cactus. Usually there's not a whole lot of other things growing there, maybe a few mesquites, and a lot of times you find them kind of along, kind of along the edge of the, the dry creeks. And when we call them creeks down in South Texas, down in the brush country, generally we're referring to the fact that the mesquites are a little bit taller and the brush is a little bit taller right along the kind of the center of this, this drainage area, if you will. To me, that was kind of a perfect title for that, what I did. I'd, over the years, back then, I spent a fair amount of time in South Texas and Spent a lot of time traveling across the brush country, and some people call it the Brasada, the wild horse desert, but basically that area from about Del Rio to San Antonio down to Corpus Christi, and 
kind of everything south of there. Uh, really, at one time, uh, if you know a little bit about Texas history, that was still disputed as, as rather a, an, an area that um, belonged to Mexico. For the longest time, when Texas tried to become an independent nation, which they did, there was a dispute going on whether the international border between Texas and Mexico was the Nueces River or the Rio Grande River. And it wasn't until considerably later that the Rio Grande River was truly established as being the international boundary between the two countries and the state of Texas and Mexico. That area spawns some truly individual I guess characters is a good way to describe it if you get right down to it. Over the years there, I spent a lot of time sitting around a campfire with old cowboys who'd worked that country and going back into maybe even as far back as the uh, late 1800s and throughout much of the 1900s. And none of those guys too had hunted in that part of the country for a long, long time. Got to meet quite a few of those characters. Got to spend some time down on the King Ranch, down on the Nordest Division and Oh, a long time ago, and, and I spent that time in one of their cow camps where basically you stayed in tents. They had a had a, a cook, full-time cook, and uh, you worked out of that area. Now, the purpose for my being there is we were doing some work on Neil Guy Antelope, uh, which had been introduced in that part of the world back in about the 1930s or so. And we've addressed those a little bit, maybe talking to some about, uh, even with uh, Greg Simons with Wildlife Systems about the Neil guy, but during those days that I spent down there, I got a chance to really go over pretty much that huge division of the Norris division, looking at Neil guy habitat, looking at deer habitat, and, and uh, kind of comparing the two, which were one and the same when you got right down to it, but to see how the various animals utilize their habitat in terms of, of cover and in terms of food as well. One of the great things about being in that cow camp was the fact that we ate along with the cowboys. We being another researcher, Dr. Mick Robinson, who I worked with and worked for with the Wildlife Disease Projects there at Texas A&M several years ago. One of the great things about being there was the fact that we got to eat the same food that those guys did. And often that meant being able to have beef pretty much three times a day. But you generally start the morning with coffee and the coffee was cooked in an old blue enamel pot that was about a five gallon pot. That pot, when I opened it up, I noticed that what they were doing, well, I should back up. Before I opened it up, I noticed what the cook was done. He'd pour some water in there, and then he'd measure out a certain number of hands of coffee grounds, and he'd pour in the exact same amount of sugar, handful of sugar, <laughs> into that coffee pot, and then he'd boil it for a while. And, and after a while, when it was boiled for to perfection as far as he was concerned, he would sometimes add some, oh, occasionally add some dried uh, eggshells, but when he thought it was ready, he would pour a little bit of cold water on top of it after taking it off the fire and pour it into, as you would imagine, some blue enamel coffee cups like you see a lot of times in old time movies and those kind of things. And you take a sip of that and it was basically syrup, but it was a sweet coffee type syrup. and. 
It was absolutely delicious. Of course, it went a long way. You didn't have to drink a whole big cup like you might have to with other coffee. So that's where I got to the point where one day I kind of looked inside this coffee pot to see what was there and see how much room there was inside because I noticed you really hadn't poured a whole lot of water in there. And when I pulled that lid off there and looked inside, I realized that the entirety of the coffee pot on the inside was encrusted with uh, probably sugar and coffee grounds. And out of about a three-gallon coffee pot that should have produced that amount of coffee, he was probably still getting about a pound. When I questioned him about all this a little bit later, and he said, "No, Senor," he said, "This is this is the way we do it here. This is is it's good coffee. It, it's good for the body. It's good for the soul. It's good for the cowboy who has to work all day, and it makes him come alive in the morning." And I'm sure it probably did make him come alive because uh, of the strength of it. But uh, no doubt, what the caffeine was content was in there because I'm sure it was extremely high and like I said it was almost a stirrup when you a syrup whenever you, you started to stir it if you, you almost could have that spoon standing straight up in that coffee cup without falling over to the side some of the meals that we ate were based upon as I said beef very seldom did they eat anything beside beef or wild game there are quite a few wild hogs down in that part of the country and, and they would send somebody out occasionally to shoot a wild hog or shoot a nil guy and particularly a Nilgai calf, which has an absolutely fabulous flavor. You can really not hardly tell it from beef simply, but you can simply because of the fact maybe there isn't any tallow or a whole lot of fat on those animals, but extremely tender, extremely good to eat. And even some of those older Nilgai bulls that they would occasionally shoot or a hunter would come in and shoot one and, and uh, they'd pull the meat off of it and we'd have it as ground meat and, and hamburger and chili and but I'll tell you what, that food was out of this world good. They they made tortillas right there on, on the spot. They did they made a lot of unleavened type bread that, that if you pour a little bit of kind of corn syrup or molasses on it, you talk about just absolutely fantastic eating. In the process of being down there, I guess I'm bitching, I got to see uh, lots of different animals. Uh, it was there that I uh, saw my first quite the Mundi, which is mostly restricted these days to ports, maybe ports of New Mexico and Arizona and then northern New, northern Mexico. And it's basically, it looks like a hog-nosed coon, but it's got a prehensile tail and they can hang by their tail, kind of like some of the, the spider monkeys and those kind of things do. They weren't there as a pet. It was also there that I got to talk to some of those old cowboys who were grizzled like I am these days, back way back when. And they told me told stories about occasionally seeing jaguar. One of the jaguars, last jaguar that was killed down there was probably killed back in the early 1900s and thereabouts. But I also remember being in a lot of different camp houses or camps, particularly old cow camps down scattered throughout the brush country where there'd be a mount of a jaguar head. Uh, generally, it wasn't a really good mount, and I'm sure the taxidermist was basically just kind of very roughly sculptured a, a, a cat's head, if you will, and, and took the natural teeth and then kind of stretched the skin over it. But there was no, no questioning that it was, it was a jaguar, and occasionally, too, you'd find a, a jaguar hide and I had nailed up on a barn wall or on an old camp wall or something like that. So country at one time too had jaguar and then one time as well there were quite a few jaguarundi little jaguarundi is kind of a little bit bigger than a fox and they kind of come in a russet gray and russet color rather and a gray and almost a black have a fairly long tail pretty secretive they're mostly found out in that part of the country but at one time they ranged pretty much all over texas the 
Jaguar, which I mentioned earlier, too, at one time ranged pretty much over a great port of Texas. And one of the last ones that was taken kind of in the northern edge of the hill country was taken in Mills County around Gowick back in the, oh, the early 1900s. And it was big enough to where it, when it was finally measured, the skull was, it made Pudding Crockett, as, as a matter of fact. Um, ocelots. There were quite a few ocelots scattered throughout the southern port of Texas. And down in that area that we call the King Ranch area these days, it's kind of a large country in terms of not a whole lot of human habitation. There are large chunks of country that really don't get visited very often except maybe by a few bird hunters or deer hunters. And those ocelots are, are starting to make a little bit of a comeback. I had the opportunity while I was there, they had a pet ocelot that had then been caught as just a, a tiny little kitten that they raised that they had on a leash down there on the, on the King Ranch on that Norris Division. And those old cowboys would tell me about you know, ocelots they'd seen and occasionally they'd see a jaguar. And of course, that country too occasionally has a mountain lion or a cougar in it as well. So uh, pretty good diversity. Lots of javelina. Introduced wild hogs and introduced nilgai. The nilgai were kind of introduced, depending on who you talk to, for for food for the cowboys, so the cowboys didn't have to eat the beef that the rancher coveted, if you will, and didn't want maybe the cowboys eating, killing the beef, you know, every two or three weeks to feed on. And so they brought the nilgai in, and, and uh, again, depending on who you talk to, some say they escaped, but kind of you talk to some of the old time cowboys and they talk about uh, the fact that those were bought from a traveling circus and released and the primary reason for releasing them was so they'd have something to eat besides cattle. Love my time down there. It was such a great opportunity to, to look at country that it really at the time was totally unspoiled. I'd walk into some of those areas, those pastures within that division that were three, four, five, six, seven, ten thousand acres in size and you'd have to, if it wasn't for the fact that you had a compass back in, we didn't have GPS, you could have possibly just walked around for hours and hours, if not days. The one thing I forgot to mention about that part of the state of Texas is the great, 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 and I'll say it again, great rattlesnakes. Lots of diamondback rattlers down in that part. I've seen snakes down there that uh, heard that there's no such thing as a six-foot rattlesnake. Well, I can attest to you that we have measured snakes there on that part of the world that go well above six feet. I've seen others that were even bigger than that. And then years ago, Randy Fugate, who was a wildlife technician stationed in Falfurious, <clears throat> he and I were down on a big old ranch down in that lower part of Texas one day and, and drove by a set of working pens and there was an elderly gentleman in there that was cleaning it out there getting ready to push cattle into it and wanted to get rid of the, all the vegetation that was in there so that was his job and we stopped just to visit with him and, and, uh, and he told us, he said, you know, he said, he said uh, and spoke kind of broken Spanish and broken English, he said, boys, I, I shot, kill, I killed the, the biggest rattlesnake I've ever seen in my life and this gentleman at the time must have been in his late 70s or something like that. He said, uh, it is an absolute monster snake, the biggest I've ever seen. And he said, I pulled it over a mesquite limb over you. you know, before you leave the ranch, you need to go by and have a look at it. Well, Randy and I had some things that we needed to get done on the ranch relative to census work. And timing of that census work was pretty critical. So we went about our business, got it taken care of. And 
as it came to late afternoon, we were headed back out to the ranch and had to drive right back by that same stock pen and kind of looked over at Randy and he over at me and we, he, he said, you know what? He said, let's, let's go see if we can find that rattlesnake that old guy was talking about earlier. So sure enough, we walked out back behind the pen and, and there pulled over a limb was a rattlesnake, the kind of which and length of which I've never, ever seen before and certainly have not seen since. He had tied it about six, eight inches behind the head, uh, pulled it over a limb, and there was about six inches, as I said, uh, beyond the limb on one side. And at that time, if I stood straight, held my hand up high, I, from, I could reach a grand total of eight feet. I stood next to this snake, reached up, and where that limb, where that snake was pulled across that limb was eight feet about six inches over on to the other side was the head and a little bit of the snake. On the ground, there was another about maybe 10, 12 inches of snake laying on the ground. And literally, my, my thighs are fairly big, but uh, literally this, this snake was the size of my thighs. It was just an unbelievable snake. And as I said, the kind of which neither Andy or I had ever seen before and I will ever see again. No doubt the snake had to be over eight feet of, of length. Uh, just huge head, much bigger than the size of my fist. And you looked at the body and you could see where it could easily swallow three or four jackrabbits or maybe even some small pigs and, and uh, uh, certainly some javelina and who knows what else that he could swallow and, and hardly even expand the size of his body from doing so. The foolish thing about all that was, is every time that Randy and I went afield, we always carried cameras. And this is before we had cell phones that have fancy cameras and all that kind of thing. For whatever reason that day, neither Randy or I carried a camera. The really stupid thing that we did is to not take that snake off that limb and throw it in the back of our state pickup and drive it to town and, and uh, get it officially measured and officially weighed and all those kind of things. And, and I kind of looked at each other after a while and said, you know what, let's get back out here first thing early in the morning. We'll bring our cameras, we'll bring measuring tapes, we'll do all those kind of things and, and get photographs. And, and uh, you know, we, we'll be able to verify the, the size of this snake to anybody that questions us. Well, we got out there really at first light the next morning, drove to the stock pens, cameras in hand, got a measuring tape, walked out behind the... Uh, the stock pens where the snake had been pulled across the limb and probably about oh maybe a half of that snake was left during the night whatever coyotes possibly bobcat raccoon hogs who knows what else might have been there but they all chewed on the snake and what was left of the snake was probably about maybe oh about five five or so feet and again, unfortunately, we did not, after that, take the snake, what was left of it, and throw it in the truck so we could show how big his head was and all those kind of things. But uh, in the years that I've traveled in South Texas and the many, many years I've, I've walked that country and also spent many years flying helicopters over it, I never saw a rattlesnake that was even close to that one. And the stories that I've listened to about people finding big snakes, yes, they get to be six, seven feet, maybe even a little bit longer than that down there. But uh, nobody I've ever talked to has told me about a snake that definitely had to have been over eight feet of length. Campfire story? Yeah, sure it is. It, it truly is. But in this instance, it's one of those that happens to be true.
While we're on snakes, we're kind of in the springtime. The snakes are really coming out. I talked to a friend of mine, Craig Archer, up on the uh, the uh, Hargrove ranches where I hunt mule deer and I've hunted whitetail. And where recently Gary Roberson and his uh, son Steve and I spent some time trying to call coyotes in the, in the absolute windy conditions, <laughs> rainy conditions that are not very conducive to uh, calling coyotes. But I had a call from uh, Craig just a little while ago, and he said, you know what? He said, I shipped up my first rattlesnake of the year. So obviously with springtime being here, spring up, warm up, going on across the country where we do have snakes, you want to be totally aware that the snakes are back out again and, and probably coming out of hibernation won't be long they'll be shedding their first set of skins or their first skin because as they grow their skin is shed and, and uh, so that the skin can, can grow or the snake can grow. Usually when that happens right before that skin starts peeling off they get to be a little bit on the cantankerous side and so sometimes I've seen rattlesnakes when they're in the process or about to shed and you can be 10, 12, 15 feet away and they can feel either the heat or the vibration of you stepping or anywhere around that area, they'll go to buzzing and making sounds and get aggressive and you get anywhere close, they'll strike in all kinds of directions without really knowing for sure maybe even where they're striking. So uh, it's that time of the year. If you're in rattlesnake country, you know, be very cognizant of the fact that the snakes are there. Be prepared to... What you gonna do when you see one? I guess many years ago when I was younger, when we found one around a house, we would dispatch it and occasionally we'll still do that today if there are kids or dogs around. But for the most part, when I see a snake out in the, out in the wild somewhere, I just, I just, I may mess with it just a little bit, kind of stir it up to get some pictures of it about to strike or, you know, something like that. But for the most part, I just kind of let them go and, and let them trail away. Again, on the topic of snakes, before we get out of that and maybe into some other things, a bunch of years ago, I was flying a helicopter survey out west of Crystal City in what we call the Bayuki country, which is basically a kind of a, a floodplain, if you will. The pilot's name was Steve Dowd. We were flying in one of the Bell 47 helicopters. If you've ever seen the MASH TV show or read about it, those were the, the what they used to transport people out of the field and, and back to the surgical hospital field uh, hospitals. That little Bell 47 had enough power and it was like a loud magic carpet, if you will, spent thousands of hours in one doing game surveys. But in this particular instance, we were flying a ranch just west of Crystal City, as I mentioned, in some of the Bayuki country. And it was probably about mid-morning and a little bit on the cool side. The sun was shining, and I looked down into some of this tall grass there and, and the weeds, and lo and behold, it looked like a tractor tire laying down there. And as we flew, flew across it, I told Steve, I said, Steve, I said, you know what? I said, that didn't quite look like a, a, a tractor tire. I said, turn this thing around. Let's go back and look at it. So sure enough, we turned the helicopter around and found this spot where I'd, I'd seen whatever it was, and looked down and it was a, a a big what we call a blue indigo or an indigo snake and it was coiled up so it looked like a tire huge huge snake that i could tell and it acted like it really didn't want to move but we just kind of hovered above it and kind of started pushing up and down on it and we were about six eight ten feet above it at that time and 
but it, because it was so huge we, re, huge, we really wanted to see how long it might be. Well, after a little bit of aggravating thing, finally it, it uh, started uncoiling. And as it did, it started slithering through the grass. And we got right down on top of it to where we were probably maybe four feet above the ground where the snake was. One of the Bell 47 helicopters with the way they're designed from the tip of the, the boom, the tailbone where the tail rotor is to where the struts are that you, where you can land on the ground from the one end to the other end it is measures 18 feet. We were about four feet off the ground, as I mentioned, and this snake was kind of slithering through the grass, not in a straight line, but uh, more or less so in, a, in, in, its, in its motion as it went. And I looked down, I said, Steve, I'm going to tell you what I think is how big this snake is, and I'm going to switch over, put it over, and I want you to switch over, put it on your side, and tell me what you think. We looked down at the snake, and I just kind of looked over at Steve, and I wrote, and I had, you know, some data cards there, and I wrote down a number as to what I thought this snake might be. And so Steve pushed the helicopter over the other side, and we stayed right on top of the snake. And he kind of looked down on the snake as well, too. And, and I realized we we're looking down on it a little bit, so they're a little bit different of an angle than there would be if you were sitting right or standing right beside it. We did that for just a little bit, and the snake finally just acted like he got tired of messing with us, and he crawled underneath a big old clump of prickly pear cactus, and, and uh, we went on about our business and got back into uh, break for lunch that morning. And, and I, so I asked Steve, I said, Steve, I, 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 what did you think? How, how big do you think that snake really was? How long do you think he was? And uh, he looked at me and he said, I'm all scared to tell you what I think. And I said, well, go ahead. I said, I've written down my number, so there's no question. I'm not going to say, well, you're right or you're wrong. You may be right. You may be wrong. But I'll tell you, too, then what, what my guesstimate was. And he goes, Larry, he said, that snake had to be 18, inch, 18 feet long. 18 feet long. Now, the, the indigo is supposedly the biggest of the uh, snakes, native snakes in in North America, and it has been recorded in lengths of somewhat in excess of, of 13 feet. I showed Steve my estimate as well, too, and I, I also had written down the figure 18, and, and to me, even if I were a foot or two off, and I can't really imagine being that way simply because of the fact that we were really looking upon the snake from out of the helicopter and had a known distance there, but... Uh, that snake too was huge around, and of course they're constrictors, and and uh, they eat rattlesnakes, and they eat pigs, and they eat anything that they can wrap their coils around and squeeze and swallow. But that too was one of the snakes that we used to occasionally catch when I was down in South Texas, and we'd find one out in the middle of a, a pasture somewhere, and if we had a sack and a snake catcher, we'd grab that snake and put it in a sack and take it back up around the barns and or the headquarters where where there was any human habitation and and uh we'd release those things there because they were great ratters and and they also as i said they killed and, and ate rattlesnakes as well too so uh very uh very beneficial snake in a lot of ways now an 18 foot or even a 13 foot uh i'm sure it's beneficial because i suspect it was eating hogs and javelina and fawns and no telling what else it was eating uh, probably anything it could catch and, and swallow at that size but too because of the size it probably took a fair amount of food to keep that snake going and uh 
keep it healthy, I often wondered what might have happened to that thing. Whether, because uh, nobody ever saw it that I'm aware of. The country we were in was kind of a backwoods kind of country and nasty old swampy area at times when there was any kind of moisture, but uh, nobody ever really went back in there to except maybe to occasionally hunt a hog kind of along the edge of the side of it. But uh, I often wonder what became of that snake and if it got any bigger and, and uh, wondered what would have happened if somebody had stumbled across that snake at night and gone, oh my God, and about that time that thing picks up and kind of looks at you and whew, that would be more than I'd want to do. It was enough. I, I felt kind of felt the williest little bit sitting in that helicopter looking down at it because the size of that thing, had it wanted to, it could wrap its coils around a human and don't think it could swallow a person, but it could darn sure put a hurt on you and try to get away from you. So many great things that, that happened down in, in this brush country here, South Texas, that I used to spend so much time in. My job back then was to work with landowners and hunting groups to establish wildlife management programs with emphasis on white-tailed deer, but also not only white-tailed deer, but some of the game birds and, and particularly to a lot of the different songbirds. There's a tremendous variety of species that do exist down there. Well, next time when we get together, we're going to talk about a few more things, talk a little bit more about South Texas, and I'll see if I can round us up a, 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 a guest or two. But I truly appreciate you being with me. Enjoy the outdoors. Enjoy your time around the campfire. And even if you think some of these are a little bit on the tall side, I assure you they're not quite there. We'll see you. Thank you. DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon has also been brought to you by Texas Wildlife Association, working for tomorrow's wildlife today. Texas raised hunting products, the scent gods, can attract boots for the trails less traveled. Voight, the finest in hunting gear. Pyramid Air for all things air gun. And Ripcord Rescue Travel Protection.